You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Midtown. In this series, we are following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we may experience true flourishing. Well, good morning, Sojourn. My name is Timothy Paul Jones. I have the privilege of serving as one of your teaching pastors here at Sojourn Midtown. I want you to think for just a moment about an airport, about airports. Now, I know it's been a while since we've been in an airport, but most of us anyway. But nonetheless, let's think about an airport and recognize this. An airport is a place that is built to leave, not a place that's built to live. It's a place that's built to leave, not a place that is built to live. And what this, so we think about this, go back to just a few months, February of this year, I think it was, the last time I was on an airplane, last time I was in an airport. And at that point, as I was walking through the airport, it crossed my mind that once you get through security, especially in a larger airport, there's really everything you need. I mean, everything except a job that you need to get by. You could actually, there's places to sleep, there's places to shower, there's places to eat. There's all sorts of things in an airport. You could just live in an airport. And I started looking up to find out, has anybody actually ever done this? And what I discovered very quickly is there are a lot of people who have lived in the airport. They just moved into the airport and actually started living there. The one who lived there the longest was a man named Mehran Nasseri. He's from Iran. And he moved into the airport in 1988. But here's what had happened. He was headed to London from Iran. He was headed to London and he stopped in Paris and somebody stole his papers in Paris. So he couldn't go on to London and he refused to go back to Iran. And so because of that, he ended up just moving into the airport and he lived in the airport for 18 years. From 1988 all the way until 2006, one third of his life up to that point, he lived in the airport. Now you hear that. And you're like, that's crazy. Why would anybody live in an airport? An airport, it's supposed to be a place you leave, not a place you live. It's supposed to get you to your destination. It's not supposed to be your destination. It just seems crazy to us to live in a place that we're supposed to leave. But in some sense, that's exactly what God in his gospel in Christ has called us to do. God has called us to make our home in a place that is not our final destination. You see, the world as it is right now, if you're a Christian, the world as it is right now is not your final destination. We are sojourners who live with one foot in each of two different worlds. (laughs) We live in this world. We're supposed to live fully and completely in this world. And yet at the same time, we also have a foot in another world of a world that God has promised is yet to come. Like Miran Nasseri in Paris, we are making our home in a place that we will one day leave as we look for a place where we've never been. Now, this is not easy. It's not easy at all. 
But it's actually Jesus's idea. Jesus in John chapter 17, verses 11 through 14, Jesus has this concept that he introduces his disciples to in which in this prayer to his father, he makes it clear that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. He says, I am no longer in the world. They are in the world. But then he goes on to say, I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world. We are supposed to be both in the world and yet not of the world. We're supposed to live in a place fully that is not our final destination. Now, here's the thing. It's easy to do one of those. It's hard to do both. It's easy to say, I'm just going to live completely in this world, completely immerse my life. It's all about this life, all about this world. That's easy to do. It's easy to say, I am not of this world. I'm going to completely withdraw from this world. I am going to have my own worldview, my own life, completely insulated from everybody else. I'm going to withdraw. That's easy. What's hard is to be in the world and not of the world. To be both a sojourner and a yearner. Somebody who sojourns in this life, but who at the same time yearns for a world that is yet to come. And that's what today's text is all about. How do I make my home in the airport? How do I live in the airport? How do I live in the world as it is when the world as it is is not my final destination? And it all starts when the Pharisees come to Jesus with a question. Now, One of my children often comes to me with this question. Sometimes it's sincere. Sometimes it isn't necessarily. And the question is, Daddy, do you love me? Now, sometimes it's a sincere question. But sometimes it means one of two things. Either something has been destroyed or something has been desired. Either there's something I need to fix and are you going to be upset with me? Or is there something I want, this person wants, who she's trying, daddy, do you love me? It's not a question, it's a trap. And it's the same way right here. Chapter 22, verse 16, they ask Jesus a question, but they aren't asking him a question. They are setting a trap. It says, so they sent their disciples to him. In other words, they themselves don't have the guts to actually go. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, we know that you're truthful and teach truthfully the way of God. You don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality. So we've got two groups here. The Pharisees who send their disciples, and we've got the Herodians. Now, the Pharisees, as we know from reading the rest of the scriptures, we know that the Pharisees are very faithful about keeping God's law. They're all about keeping God's law and even add new laws on top of God's law. They're religious leaders who are serious about their Old Testament. Then comes with them this other group, though, the Herodians. Now, without getting into too much political detail, the Herodians were those who were connected to the Herod family, and they had lost much of their political clout and power in the year 6 AD when the Romans took over direct governorship of Judea. So in other words, they had been allowed to kind of rule as a client kingdom to rule the areas of Judea, Galilee, some of those areas there the Herod family had. But then due to mismanagement, the Romans set up their own governor, and the Herodians lost much of their power. Now, here's what you need to understand in this, is that both the Herodians and the Pharisees, they weren't friends with each other. They weren't on the same side necessarily, but they both resented and hated the Romans, and neither one was a fan of Jesus. 
And so they come to Jesus with this question. And they speak truth in spite of themselves because he, they say to Jesus, you don't care what anything anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality. The, another way of translating that is, you don't look at anyone's face. And what is meant by that is, you don't judge people by the outward appearance. You don't judge people in a way that the world around us judges them. When you see somebody, you see who they truly are, and these people are speaking truth in spite of themselves. And I just have to pause and say for a moment, and for us to pause at this, and say the wonder of a Savior who doesn't see us like the world sees us. A Savior who doesn't see us and doesn't assess us and doesn't judge us by the way other people around us do, but a Savior who sees us not as everyone else does, but as he himself can only know. But the topic here is taxes, taxes. Now, we often, as Americans in particular, we have this idea that we kind of understand what's going on here because our nation's founding, at least in its political sense, had that whole tea incident and the tax incident and all those things that was about taxation without representation. We look at this, we think, oh, we know what you're talking about there. But let me help you understand. Caesar, King George, not the same thing, okay? Help us understand, let's think through together and make sure we understand the British Empire, the Roman Empire, not the same thing. Let's think a little bit about this. You see, in their context, there were fewer than 10% of the people who were actually citizens of Rome. The rest of the people were, in essence, subjugated peoples, only less than 10%. Were, under, were actually Roman citizens. If you were Roman citizens, you paid no taxes at all. You had none. You didn't have to fill out your equivalent of a 1040 form ever. You never paid taxes. So in other words, everybody else was having to pay the taxes for, for the Roman Empire as subjugated people while those who were Roman citizens enjoyed the benefit of that. But not only that, the Caesars. I mean, remember that Caesars, all of them, were dictators all the way until death. And increasingly throughout the history of the Roman Empire, what we find is that this death usually was not natural. The movement from one Caesar to another was often less like an election and more like the Hunger Games. They're wiping one out, poisoning them, killing them, whatever it may be, but they're moving to another one in that particular way. But most importantly, and this is a distinction in this, there was no hope of representation. Nobody ever thought I, my opinion could be represented in Rome. Unless you are part of the uppermost echelon of society, you have never the slightest hope of ever being represented. Nobody cares about your opinion. Nobody cares what view, your view on things are. And your taxes are going to support a pagan empire. I like what Russell Moore, how he says it at one point. He says, some of the taxes given by New Testament Christians would have been going to pay for crucifixion stakes, for wild beasts, for the gladiatorial games, and for incense to be burned in honor of a, so the self-proclaimed divinity of Caesar. That's what they were paying for. And the Pharisees and many, many, many of the people, their attitude was this. Our Messiah is coming. He is going to throw the Roman Empire down. He's going to put people like us in charge, and we're going to rule things. We are looking for a world that is yet to come. We are not about the world as it is. We are only about the world that's yet to come. When our Messiah comes, overthrows all of you, and we become those on top, and the Romans are those 
on the bottom. They paid their taxes, but they resented it and resisted it. And they also saw the face of Caesar itself that was stamped on every coin as in some sense being a graven image, as an idolatrous thing. Because remember, the Caesars were divinized. They were claimed to be gods at some level. And so these coins that had pagan imagery on them, they saw this as a graven image, an idol that they had to use to pay their taxes stamped on every coin. And so to pay this, in their minds, was to support the idolatry that was part of the Roman Empire and to recognize Caesar as the rightful ruler of their lives. So they're asking, what do we do? This is a super touchy topic for them right now. 25 years earlier, a man named Judas the Galilean, 25 years earlier, Judas the Galilean, when the the Romans took over direct governorship of these, these regions, he rose up and said, I'm not paying taxes. And he gathered a bunch of other people around him that said, we're not paying taxes. We have no God but the true God. We are not going to pay taxes. And they refused. And you know what happens? The governor sent a fully armed battalion to remind them of his love, his love of getting his money. That's what he tried to do. He sent it, he crushed them, destroyed them, killed Judas the Galilean. That's what he did. And so for the Pharisees and the Herodians, this is a touchy topic. And so because it's such a touchy topic, they're putting Jesus in this difficult place because for the Pharisees and the Herodians, the deal was is that the answer to this question was no. We shouldn't have to pay taxes. But if Jesus says no, he's going to go the way of Judas the Galilean. The Romans are going to come get him. The Romans are going to kill him if he says no to this question. But if Jesus says yes to this question, on the other hand, then he's going to lose all the support of the people. All the people are going to turn against him because he has said, you should pay your taxes. This question isn't a question. It's a trap. It's a trap. And Jesus says to them, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Now, child comes to you and says, do you love me? Just say to them, Why do you test me, you hypocrite? That's just a great line to say to your child when they're trying to ask you something. It's not a question. It's a trap. But Jesus calls them hypocrites. That's a way of saying somebody who is, in essence, an actor. Okay, somebody who is two-faced. They act one way in one context and another way in another context. He says, you're acting like you're bringing me an honest question, but you know very well that you're not. And then Jesus says, show me the money. Literally, show me the money. Like, let's look at the money. And so he looks at the money. He says to them, asks them what they already know, whose face, whose image is on this? But he says it in a unique way. He says, whose image and likeness is on this? Ooh, that's going to trigger something in their minds. Image and likeness. They've heard that before. It's in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, we find that same phrase, image and likeness, when it says, so God created humanity in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female, his own image, his own likeness. They recognize this. This is from Genesis 1, but he's saying, whose image and likeness is on the coin? The coin. And they say, it's Caesar's. And he says to them, 
give back, repay, recompense to Caesar, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He says, this money, it's marked with the image and the likeness of Caesar. So give it back to him. Let him have it. Let him have what he demands. But then he adds this other phrase. He says, and render to God what is God's. Now, based on what has already been said about image and likeness, they know what he's saying, or they should. In the Old Testament, in Genesis 1, it had said humanity, every human being, is created in the image and in the likeness of God. He says, render unto God what is God's. What is God's image? You are. You are. Every human being is God's image, Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Render unto God that which is God's. Give yourself to God. But let's dig into this. Let's unpack what it means even to speak of the image and likeness of God. What did this even mean? Well, we've got to go back on our minds to ancient kings and the way that they would mark their territories, their domains. If they took over a, a, a nation, a territory, a place... One of the things they would do to demonstrate, I own this place, is they would put a golden image or some sort of a statue, whether stone or or gold or whatever, they would put some sort of a statue of themselves in that place to say, I own it. It's mine. That was their image, their likeness. And so what it's saying when it says that God has created us in his image, every one of us are a signpost in God's creation that he owns it. It belongs to him. It's his property. That's what God is declaring about his creation, not through golden images, but through living representatives. You see, what we are supposed to be as human beings, what we were created to be, was to be representatives of the presence and the power of God in a world that is his property. That's what he created us to do. We rebelled against this in Adam and Eve, and we have all added to this rebellion, but we were created to be God's representative of his power in the world. That's what he created us for. He created us to enact his will in the world by reflecting his glory, by cultivating culture, by speaking his truth, all for his glory and in his name. And Jesus says, render unto God, that which is God's. You give your money to Caesar, but you give yourself to God. Now, these words represent a revolution in the entire history of humanity. We read these, we brush over these, we forget that this is not how the world worked for the people then and had never worked for people then. These words are a revolution in the history of humanity because for all the time of empires and kingdoms up to this point, the empire, the kingdom, and the religion were bound together. They were bound inseparably together. What belonged to the king or to the emperor and what belonged to God was the same thing. These were bound together. When you honored the emperor, you were honoring the emperor's gods. When you honored God, you were doing that for the sake of the empire. These all were bound together. These words are a revolution against this world, this idea of an empire and religion being bound together. 
Because with these words, Jesus shatters that assumption. He shatters that system. And the kingdom of Christ suddenly becomes a kingdom that has no human borders. A faith that isn't tied to a place or a power. This is part of why Christianity has survived and thrived and grown because it has set the message of Christianity free from a place or from a particular people or from a particular power. It sets the gospel free to go to every place. And that happens with these radical words that Jesus speaks. He's in essence saying, you can honor Caesar as the ruler of this empire and never honor him as the ruler of your soul. That's radical. People haven't thought that way before. This is something that Jesus introduces to the way of thinking that we can't understand how radical it is. When he says to render to Caesar what's Caesar's, render to God what is God's, he's saying, learn to make your home in an airport. Learn to make your home in the world as it is, but place your hope in a kingdom that is yet to come. Place your hope in a kingdom without borders. Now, this would be for any normal human being a mic drop moment, just boom, Jesus just drops it right there. But here's the thing with Jesus in this chapter, he like has three more mic drop moments before the end of the chapter, because he's Jesus, he can do this. And so this was just one kind of a warm up to the next one in which the Pharisees' disciples slink away and the Sadducees enter, the Sadducees. See, in verse 23, them kind of entering the scene right here to ask Jesus a question. That same day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came up to him and questioned him. Now, you got to understand the Sadducees, they only believed the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's all they believed. They didn't believe anything else was true. They didn't believe anything else was to be accepted as authoritative. They didn't accept anything else as necessarily true or authoritative. And they believed that this life is all there is. There is no life after this one. You're dead, you die. There is no life beyond this life. There is no resurrection yet to come. But of course, the Pharisees, they were looking for another life. They were looking for a resurrection that was yet to come. They were longing for that. But the Pharisees, it was this life only that you would live, at least in your flesh, you would only live in this life. So these are basically Pharisees, Sadducees. These are two rival theological gangs here, okay? And then so one of them comes to Jesus and he shuts one of them down and the other one comes to Jesus with their own question. And their question is a weird one. It is a strange one. They think that they have proof for their rejection of the resurrection. And to prove it, they give him a dilemma, a very strange dilemma, which sounds like a bad reality TV show plus a horror film, like seven husband wife swap, sudden death edition. So you've got this whole situation they set up in which this woman marries a man and he dies. And so she's passed to his brother and he dies all the way to seven. And so that in the resurrection, there would have been seven husbands and we can't have that. And therefore there must be 
no resurrection. Now, this is based in part on a novel that was written between the Old and the New Testaments. The name of the novel is the book of Tobit. Tobit, you all should really read Tobit because it is a fascinating book, the book of Tobit. It's this adventure story in which this guy goes on this journey with a pet dog and, and, and there's a sea monster that tries to eat a guy's leg. And as part of that story is also this whole thing of a woman who all of her husbands had died and they were trying to figure out what the reason was. So book of Tobit is where it's partly at least drawn from. And you're like, this is weird. And you know what? It is weird. But it helps us to look at the Old Testament and understand why. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 25, God kind of spells this out in Deuteronomy 25 verses 5 and 6. And so what we have there is this, look, if you have brothers that are living on the same property, one of them dies and then the, the, the wife needs to have sons raised up to her. So she is to be the next brother in line, basically, becomes her husband in, a, in some sense. But the children that she has through him are not counted as his children. They're counted as the children of the first man she married. That's how this process worked. And like, why is this? You got to understand and think about that the point of this was actually to protect women from poverty and exploitation. Now, it sounds strange to us, but you don't have any income apart from a son or a husband, any legitimate income. You're going to be exploited. You're going to be used. You are going to be in poverty if you have no son or husband in their culture, in their world. And so to, to remedy that, there's this thing called leveret marriage that, that emerged to try to protect women from that. And so that they could raise up children in the name of their husband and that they could have that social security, we might say, of having these children so that they would not be exploited, taken advantage of. That was the point of this. It's strange to us, but that was the purpose of this. But this is all part of the story that they're telling of how they're trying to prove that there, are no, there is no such thing as the resurrection. And therefore, the world as it is must be the only world there is, at least for us in our flesh, because after all, this woman cannot have seven husbands in the resurrection. Jesus, though, replies to them brilliantly, absolutely brilliantly. Look at verse 29. Jesus answered them, you are mistaken because you don't know the scriptures and you don't know God's power. I love that. That's a great opening line. You're mistaken. You don't know God's word. You don't know God's power. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now concerning the resurrection of the dead, didn't you read what was spoken to you by God? I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Total brilliance. Total, absolute brilliance here. Jesus solves the riddle. And he says, here's how I'm solving your riddle. is by letting you know that in heaven, in the heavens, in the future, the kingdom that is yet to come, in that realm, there will be no marriage. And so they, she won't be buried to anyone. We'll be like the angels. Now, not like the angels in the sense of being spiritual, okay? We still have physical bodies. But in the angels in the sense that we never die and there is no marriage. And you may wonder, why, why is this? Why is this exactly that we will no longer have marriage and no longer marry one another in the end, at the end of time when God fulfills everything? And Jesus doesn't tell here, but Paul does. 
Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, he says that marriage, the purpose of marriage, the number one purpose of marriage is to point to the love that Jesus Christ has for his church. And you see that in the end of time, that's fulfilled. We don't need the image to point forward to that reality because that will be experienced. The love of Jesus for his church will be experienced in such a way with absolute fulfillment that marriage becomes no longer necessary. It's fulfilled in Christ and the church. This is a beautiful thing when you think about it, that what Jesus is saying here. When he brought, when God brought Adam and Eve together in the beginning that God already had his people, the church, in mind. He brought them together in marriage to point forward to the beauty of what Jesus Christ would do for his church and how Jesus would love his church. And that will be fulfilled at the end of time. It's a beautiful thing. And then Jesus adds another proof. He says, look, remember, God said, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you really think that God is the God of three dead guys? <laughs> That's what he's saying in essence. Do you really think he's the God of three dead guys? I think if God is saying he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they must be at some level, in some way, still alive. Now, what Jesus is saying here is the world as it is, is not all there is. Like an airport. <laughs> the world as it is points forward to a world that is yet to come to a kingdom that's already begun, but it's also yet to come in its fullness. And notice in verse 22 and verse 33, both times it says the people were amazed, astonished, shocked at what Jesus had to say. And we're reminded in that something we often forget. Jesus was smart. Jesus was like a really smart guy. We often think of him as being divine, and as we should. We think about him as being a perfect human being, as we should. We think about him being a sacrifice, a risen king, all those things we should. But Jesus was also brilliant. He was as brilliant and more brilliant than any philosopher of their day. And therefore, they were shocked at what he had to say. Jesus went beyond any philosopher that they had ever heard, any religious teacher they had heard. Jesus was brilliant. And they were marveling and amazed at what he said. So the Sadducees, they say the world as it is, is all there is. The Pharisees, they're all only about the world that is yet to be. Forget about this world. We want to get to that world that is yet to come. But Jesus says, live fully in the world as it is, but realize that the world as it is, is not all there is. That's what Jesus has to say. The world as it is, is not all there is. So what do we do with this? There's three things I want you to get out of this text for your life for this week. Here's the first one. The world as it is really matters. Do you realize that? The world as it is, it really does matter. Yeah, this, this world is broken. Oh my goodness. This world is broken. And we have felt it this year like no other year that I can quite remember. Not just the COVID-19 pandemic, not just all of those things, but political division and racial injustice and all the things that have happened this year. We feel the brokenness of this world. 
But this world is also a beautiful place. It is an enchanted place, we could even say. It truly is. You go out, just a week or so ago, went to Big Four Bridge and just stood there and watched the sunset over the city. You look at that skyline, you look at all that, and you realize this world is just beautiful. It's amazing. It matters. It matters to God, and it should matter to us. This world really matters. We see that when he says, render to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give this world what this world, give to this world for the good of this world. And we're reminded by that, that we need to recognize those who rule. They have a real and a rightful power that we're required to respect. And, And the reason for that ultimately is not even the things to do with COVID have arisen without God's permission. Not even the things we're experiencing. God has allowed whatever has happened. And this world that he's allowed it in, it really does matter. And therefore, we are called to respect the authorities that there are. We're called to love the world as it is even. Because there's never an emperor or president or king or pandemic or anything that happens or any tragedy that happens. There's none of those that has God wringing his hands, walking up and down, pacing heaven, saying, oh, myself, what am I going to do? I didn't see that coming. None of that. God knew, and he loves this world, and this world matters. Let's drill down to the hard part of this. Because this world matters and God gives particular power to particular people in the world we live in. If rulers demand that we affirm or do what God forbids, yes, we push back against that. We resist that. If rulers require evil or they forbid what God commands, we protest and we persist in working for justice and doing what's right in working for the glory of God and proclaiming the gospel. But outside of those things... God tells us over and over, pray and obey. And pray and obey so that you may be able to proclaim the gospel. That's what God says. He says it over and over, even in a pandemic. Even in a pandemic. And it's not like this is the first time this has happened in human history. Do you realize that? We often think this is like the first time. Do you realize that back in the 17th century, there was actually a pandemic in which this pestilence or plague caused them to have to shut down churches because even they in the 17th century realized there were certain things happening when people were gathering together. We're not even in the first time on this. This is not the first time around. And here's what a Puritan pastor named Richard Baxter said in the 17th century. Hear this. In time of pestilence, It is lawful to do secretly that which we cannot do publicly, to omit some assemblies for a time that we may thereby have the opportunity for more later. Hmm. Huh, 17th century, they have that to say. I think that's pretty important. That they said that all the way back in the 17th century. So respect your rulers. When you're out in public, wear your mask, cultivate beauty, chase justice, seek the good of the city, do all these things as best we can and know that God is in control and he loved this world and this world matters and the things that have happened in it have not taken him by surprise. Can we just do that? 
second thing I want you to get. It's almost like a paradox with the first one. The world as it is, is not the world that matters most. The world as it is, is not the world that matters most. Here's what I'm convinced of. The people who love this world best are the ones who love the next world most. The people who love this world best are the ones who love the next world most. You see, because when we love the next world, we have a vision for what ought to be. We have a vision for how this world ought to be because we have a vision for a world that is yet to come. G.K. Chesterton said, we must be fond of this world in order to change it, but we must be fond of another world in order to have something to change it to. That's what we're called to. And so live fully in this world, but live knowing it's an airport that aims you somewhere else. And honestly, in this political season in particular, to hear some people talk, you would think this world is all there is. That if we don't get the right people, the right rulers, the right things in this world, then everything is sunk. There are people who it seems like Christians, who seems like they can only be at rest if their preferred person or their preferred party is the one that populates the Capitol and the White House and the courts. And if that doesn't happen, then everything is going to be terrible. And that's as true on the right as on the left. This is as true of conservative as liberal. This is something that we see in our world. Do you realize there was not one time during the entire time the New Testament was written when Christians had someone on their side as an emperor in Rome? Not one time. They had a governor even that was on their side. And think about these emperors. I mean, Nero and Caligula murdered their own family members, one of them by kicking his pregnant wife to death. These are evil people. Caligula was a cross-dresser who made his horse a senator. Nero blames the Christians for a fire in Rome and then burns Christians to illuminate his parties in his gardens. That's the emperors they had. Those were the emperors they had. These people were so unstable, they couldn't have gotten approved to get a dog at the Humane Society but they were ruling the Roman Empire. And yet in the New Testament, it says, pray for them, pay your taxes. doesn't say you have to agree with them. And Jesus is making it clear, you don't give your soul to them, but you pray and you pay. And even in Revelation, it says, he calls them a beast, <laughs> refers to one of the emperors as a beast. But even there, even there, the emphasis is not on anything other than the kingship of Jesus over everything. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. See, the early Christians, they weren't worried about getting their guy on the throne in Rome because they knew their God was on the throne in the heavens. And we need to remember that. We give our rulers, we give them the revenue and the respect, but we don't give them our souls. We never give them our souls. Now, I want to ask you a question. I want to dig deep and maybe painful. How do I know when I'm giving earthly leaders my soul? How do I know when I'm giving political parties my soul? How do I know that? Do you feel anger and hatred at candidates or persons that you don't like? 
Do you feel anger or hatred or maybe even just a smug sense of superiority toward people who voted differently from you? Do you live in fear of what will happen if the person I want isn't in charge? When we start to do that, we've given earthly politics our soul instead of giving our soul to God and give them what we have to give. Don't invest your soul in the Capitol or the courts or the White House because our hope is in a risen king who will one day return not to a White House but on a white horse. And this world matters, but it doesn't matter most. And there is a world, there is a kingdom that is yet to come. And that sets us free. Do you realize how that sets us free? It sets us free to be able to say, I don't have to invest my soul in this. I can do what I think is right. I can vote for what I think is right. But I don't have to invest my soul in this. As I think about that freedom, I think about a story that I heard Nick Ripkin tell about believers in China. And there's kind of a script that certain ones go through when they are called in before the the authorities in China. And the the people, they would say something to the effect of, we're going to take your property if you keep this up, if you keep worshiping as you are. And the response is, that makes me free to trust Jesus more. And they said, we're going to beat you. The response is, that makes us free to be able to see how he heals us. And then they would ask, we're going to put you in prison, and that makes me free to share the gospel with prisoners, and finally, we will kill you. Then that sets me free to be with my Savior. They're free because their soul isn't invested in this world, not in a way of this world's powers. We're invested in this world because we want to see God bring the kingdom here to see it multiply here in preparation for another world. It sets us free. It sets us also free to be generous when we're this way. When we realize the next world matters more than this one, we can give away what we have in this world. When we recognize that, it sets us free to fight sin better. Because the desire I may have right here should be seen as nothing in comparison with the glory that is yet to come. There's more pleasure, more glory in a world that is yet to come. It sets us free to fight sin. This world matters, but this world is not the world that matters most. Don't give it your soul. Don't give it your soul. Lastly, the joy and the pain of this world, this world as it is, it should point us toward the world that is yet to be. Let it point you toward the world that is yet to be. Here's something I think we've done as American Christians, as Western world Christians often, we don't yearn for the world that is yet to be. And one of the reasons we don't is because the world as it is is pretty comfortable. But suddenly for many of us, yes, in smaller ways, far smaller than our brothers and sisters around the globe, but suddenly it isn't. Like right now, the world is not as comfortable as it once seemed to be. I don't know about you, but to me often, everything feels like a a pair of shoes that just don't fit in the world. Like everything's just off a little bit and chafes in the world. 
I want us to understand and to recognize that reality and how just as the joy of this world should point us to a joy that is yet to come, the pain should point us toward a glory and a wonder that is on the other side of it. It should. And here's why I really want to emphasize this. I hear so many, many people, even among Christians, who as you hear them talk, it's, and this isn't wrong in and of itself, but you hear them talking as if once there's a vaccine for this, everything will be okay. Like everything will be okay. Like all the problems we're having, if once that, everything goes back to normal. And what I want us to see is there's a sense in which we can make that hope of life going back to normal, make it a Messiah. Make it a Messiah. If that comes, once that comes, it's all going to be okay. Once that comes, it'll all be okay. And here's what we end up doing. We push to the future so many of the problems we have, thinking once that happens, everything will be fine. And I noticed that because I remember a time in my own life when my wife and I were longing to have children. And we, we put everything, once we have kids, this will be okay. Once we have a child, this will be okay. Once, and we pushed all sorts of issues we were having to that. And then we had a child. We adopted a child. And you know what? Not everything got okay. And in fact, we had to work through a couple of years of some really rough years together because of the fact that we had put all of our hopes, if, if only this happens, it'll be okay. Do you know what we'd done? We'd made our dream of that our Messiah. And once it happened, it couldn't satisfy. The vaccine can come. The world can feel like it's going back to normal. And if you've pushed everything forward, you're still going to be having the same brokenness, the same sin, the same struggles, and it's going to land hard. Here's what we need to do instead. And that is to learn to lament and let that lament turn into longing for what God has promised. Lament. Not only over the, the horrific deaths and all the things we see, but lament even over the little things in your life that are just hard. Be okay with saying, I'm sad about this. I lament this. Or if it's a sin to say, I'm struggling with this. This is really hard right now, and, and I'm not, this is getting out of hand. I can't do this. I need help. Don't wait. Don't push it off thinking things are going to get better. Instead, learn to lament and to cry out for help now. Learn to do that. The world is an airport that we're called to live in. We live in this, and yet we long for something that is yet to come. And in that, we cling to the reality of the death of Jesus and his resurrection. That that resurrection of Jesus not only guaranteed that he is the king over all creation, the resurrection of Jesus guaranteed your resurrection and guaranteed that that new world really is coming. It's only possible by means of the gospel by means of the truth of what God has revealed in Jesus, where he has taken the penalty we deserved, lived the life that we should have lived and couldn't, and he died in our place and was raised in triumph over that. That's the only thing that makes it possible. And that doesn't just make it possible. It guarantees that it 
will happen. Meron Nasseri, a man I spoke of at the beginning who lived 18 years in Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris. He never made it. In 2006, he was hospitalized, placed in a care center in Paris, and he never made it to the home he hoped for. He never did. He's there still today in a care center in Paris, and he never made it to the home that he had hoped for. Do you know what? Praise God for this. That can never happen to you if you're God's child. Your father is going to get you home. Your father is going to get you to that next world if you're his child. You're never going to be abandoned in this airport. You'll never be abandoned here. Now, that's where a little bit of the analogy I've used at the airport breaks down. Because what, the way God will do it is not by taking us to the destination, but by bringing the destination to us. That's what we see in the beautiful words in Revelation 21, in which John says, there's a bride and it's the people of God and it's coming to earth and God is planting this upon the earth. That's what we see in Revelation chapter 21 and it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Because somehow in a way I don't understand, God will bring the world that is to come among us here. Praise him for that. And because of the resurrection, it's guaranteed. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would guide us, guard us. Let us long for and love the world that is yet to come. God, forgive us of the ways we sell our souls to this world. God, direct us, direct our attention and our love to your kingdom. In your name we pray. Amen. Usually each week we gather together and we take the meal of communion. We take this meal and we take it together of the bread and the wine. We aren't doing that this week. And the reason we aren't doing that is because we're not together. This is a meal for us when we're together. But even in that, let's let that be a longing that it awakens within us for the time when we'll gather together and we will have it together, but ultimately for the day when we'll have it with Jesus in the world that is yet to come. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit SojournChurch.com slash Midtown.